pray you to turn with me this morning once again to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, where we have been listening in on some face-to-face meetings with Jesus, some one-on-one interviews with the Master. And today we come to John chapter 11, where Jesus encounters a familiar face and a sad face in the person of his bereaved friend, Martha. And as we listen and think these things through this morning, we're going to focus our attention on verses 17 through 27, but so that the context might be clear in our minds, let's just begin our reading now all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came, 
Where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Father, the the voice of your Son, the Son of God, is powerful, even calling life from death. And we pray that we would hear his voice in this, your word, today. Speak to us now. Far beyond just my voice, let us hear your voice speaking to us from this passage. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This past Thursday afternoon with Toby and the children and out near the town of Bethel, I found myself meandering through an old pioneer cemetery which dates back to the early 1800s. And as you might know, that's just almost as far as history goes back in these parts, at least history of non-native settlements. So this is an old cemetery for this part of the country. And like so many from those olden times, the gravestones fan out from the focal point of a little white clapboard church building, perhaps built with some of the very hands of those whose dust now lies beneath those old stones. It was quite interesting. Among the old tottering grave markers, we found the graves of several Civil War veterans, uh, of the grandparents of Ulysses S. Grant, and of a Cornelius McCollum, born all the way back in 1747, and a veteran of the Revolutionary War, believe it or not. Perhaps most poignant of all, there were some of the very first graves dug on that site for two young boys, Elijah and Elisha Dole, who both died in infancy in the early 1800s and whose parents were then later buried right beside. And as I think about all those early Ohioans from two centuries ago riding in on their wagons to that little church building Sunday by Sunday and standing in that graveyard at various seasons of their lives as they buried their dead church family and physical family, it occurred to me, it occurs to me, that as much as has changed about the way we live from that time to this, over all these various centuries, as much as has changed about how we live day to day, 
Our circumstances in the face of death are very much the same, whether we're in Cincinnati in 2017 or in Bethel in 1813 or in Bethany with Jesus and Martha. It's true today the news of death comes to us much more rapidly with modern technology than it came to Jesus here in John 11:6 or to the early American settlers through the grapevine of word of mouth so that even had Jesus not delayed two days before he left, it still would have been two days after Lazarus' death that he arrived there. Things, news moves much more rapidly today than it did, and we get to the cemetery much more rapidly today, don't we, than the Lord or the early pioneers. They had to walk or ride on animals. Today, the graves are, are dug with machinery rather than with shovels and the human hands of the loved ones. But when the purpose for the gathering is finally at hand, when the grave has been opened and the family has gathered there around it and the cell phones have been turned on silent and the minister reads from his Bible and says a prayer there beside the open grave, the gathering at the graveside and the slow filing away of the mourners once the grave has been closed are exactly the same today as they ever were. Whether in Bethany or in Bethel, or in any burial ground in which you've ever stood. It's always the same. There is a little plot of earth, perhaps a marker raised above it, a grieving family and friends circled around, and then a lonely silence in that plot and in all the spots where the loved one once lived until the Lord shall come again. If we could go back in time, in other words, and stand beside one of those Bethel graves open on the day of one of those pioneer funerals 200 years ago, we would not feel all that out of our element. We would know exactly what was going on. Now, put us in one of their primitive homes or on one of their farms trying to use their 1800s tools or trying to drive one of their buckboard wagons, and we would all be fish out of water, wouldn't we? But set us down beside one of their open graves, gathered with a family at one of their burials, and it would look exactly the same as it does today. And we would know exactly what was taking place. The grave is ever the same. So much so that could you have taken even one of those early Ohio pioneers and set them down beside the grave of Lazarus in John 11, they would have assimilated into that scene just as easily as we would into theirs. And so would we. The grave and the gatherings beside it and the pain that radiates from it are always the same. Which means that many of you have stood exactly in Martha's sandals as we find her here in John 11. You may not have cooked with her same utensils. You may not have used her same method of transportation. You may not have worn her same clothing. But many of you have stood with her at the same kind of graveside. And all of you will stand with her at a lonely graveside eventually and probably many times over if you live long enough in this world. And it will be helpful to remember in that day what we are going to see and hear in Jesus on this day. What is our Jesus like face to face with the bereaved? How does he comfort his grieving people? As we think it out, it is worth noticing off the top here that Martha is one of his grieving people. Martha is a believer 
in other words, as we find her here in this chapter. And in this respect, she is in a very different place than the two people that we have seen Jesus encounter in chapters 3 and 4 in the last couple of weeks. Both of them, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, were lost, confused, separated from God, and in need of Christ's saving intervention, in need of coming to know the Lord. But Martha already knows the Lord. And she doesn't just know the Lord in the sense that she and her siblings are personal friends of Jesus. Martha knows the Lord in the sense that as we see in verses 21 and 22 and 24, she has come to believe in him. She has come to faith in him. She knows in verse 22 that Jesus is uniquely in tune with the Father and that whatever he prays for, he will have. And she believes in verse 24 in the resurrection of the saints at the last day. And even in verse 21, where she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even there, I don't think she's chiding Jesus. She's just expressing sadness at what she believes to have been a missed opportunity. But she's mixing that sadness and what she thinks is a missed opportunity with at least enough faith to be able to say, you have power over sickness, Lord, and you're so good that had you been here, I know you would have been able to help my brother. I know you would have helped my brother. Her faith is not perfect, as we read later on when they're about to open the gravestone. She doesn't understand everything yet, but Martha is definitely a believer, unlike our two previous subjects when they encounter Jesus. And yet, just because Martha believes, just because Martha is already converted, that she's already saved, does not mean that she no longer has any need for Jesus to intervene powerfully in her life. She does. Just like Nicodemus needed Christ's intervention, and just like the woman at the well needed Christ's intervention, Martha, for whom Christ has already intervened for her conversion to himself, yet still needs Jesus to intervene in her life again in the face of this great trial. She needs Jesus to be there for her in what is perhaps the hardest season of her life up to this point, the loss of her beloved brother. For notice in verses 18 and 19 that there are many comforters who have apparently made the two-mile walk out to Jerusalem or out to Bethany from Jerusalem. Surely many of them had been there at the graveside a few days before, and many of them in verses 18 and 19 are still there with her. And no doubt, many of these people who are with her are good friends. Many of them were probably godly friends whose presence with her has been very important and very needful to Martha and to her sister and very much appreciated by them as well. Thank God for faithful friends in our hours of grief, right? Their presence with Martha in verses 18 and 19 is invaluable. But notice that even though Martha has many comforters on this day, When she hears in verse 20 that Jesus is on the road into town, Martha leaves all the comforters behind in her house and puts on her sandals and goes out to meet Jesus. She needs Jesus most of all. She needs to commune with him. She needs to be comforted by him. She needs to pour out her grief to him. She needs a word of consolation from him more than she needs any of these other good godly comforters. And this too is the same, isn't it? as it ever was. It's the same beside every grave and inside every grieving home. Wonderful and needful as it is to have the closest friends and family with us, there is a friend 
in the days of bereavement whose presence we need most of all. And that friend is Jesus. And again, some of you have been there. You've been in the place where after all the good your friends have done you, after all the rallying of the family together, after all the kind words and the cards, after all the blessing of people just being there, which is valuable even if they don't have much to say, some of you have yet been in the place where even after all the good and necessary comforts, what you still need most was to hear the voice of Jesus, whose voice alone could quiet your troubled soul. That's why the Bible is so prominent or should be in Christian funerals and why we have to saturate ourselves and each other in the Bible in days of grief because this is how Christ meets with us. This is where Christ speaks to us in his word and we must go out to meet him with Martha here in verse 20 and with her sister Mary in verses 31 and 32. We must go out to hear his voice here in the scriptures. And we're reminded in this passage that when we go out to meet him, In our grief, as at any other time, when we go out to meet Jesus and to hear from Jesus, what we find in this passage is that he is the one who's first come to meet us. We're reminded here in John 11 that Jesus comes to us in our grief. It's true, of course, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. It's true that he will never leave or forsake us. But there is a unique nearness. There's a unique drawing near of Jesus when we are brokenhearted. The Lord, Psalm 34, is near to the brokenhearted. And we see it here. Jesus comes to Martha in her sorrow. We're reminded in this passage, in this brokenheartedness, that the Lord comes to us because he comes physically near to Martha and Mary, doesn't he? He travels some distance of a journey, maybe from Galilee, but he's left Judea, so he's coming from some distance back down to Judea, according to verse 7, where he's a wanted man, according to verse 8, but he comes anyway. He makes that trek so that he can be near his grieving friends, so that he can comfort them as only he can. Now, again, it's true, Jesus doesn't arrive in Bethany until four days after the death, which may seem awfully late for one who is omniscient and for one who, even humanly speaking, knew two days before that Lazarus was sick, verse 6, before he set out for Bethany. But if you read verse 6 carefully, and if you read verse 15 with it, you'll discover that Jesus' delay was purposeful. Jesus wasn't late in coming to Mary and Martha and to their dead brother. He was right on his own wise timing. And we could talk more about why that is, but even if we, even if we just consider that, Jesus is right on time. He's there right when he needs to be to comfort his friends. We might also notice later in the chapter that the purpose for which Jesus came four days after the fact was not just to comfort Mary and Martha, but to raise Lazarus from the dead, verses 38 and following, so that people might believe, verse 15, that he's the Christ. So we might say, well, he's coming not mainly to comfort them, he's coming to raise the dead. Yes. But even still, it is true that though he came to raise the dead, another reason he came to Bethany was to comfort these two grieving friends because he doesn't go straight to the tomb and raise the dead does he he doesn't just show up in town and do the miracle he stops 
to talk to Martha on the road outside of town. And in verse 30, he waits for her sister Mary so that he can talk to her as well. For while he has come, yes, to raise their brother from the dead, he has also come in the meantime to comfort those who have been bereft of him. And I suggest to you that this is what he's doing still. It's true that eventually, just as in this passage, eventually Jesus is going to arrive in this world, just as he arrives at the grave in verse 38 of this chapter, eventually Jesus is going to arrive in this world someday in such a way and to speak in such a way that all of our brothers in Christ will rise again and such that all of our sisters will ascend from the grave. He is coming to do the miracle, just like he did in Bethany. But just like in Bethany, in the meantime, before he does the miracle, before the time for resurrection is right, while we are in our grief, he is always coming also to meet with his people, as with Mary and Martha on the outskirts of town, to comfort us in our grief. He's coming to do the miracle, but in the meantime, he is coming to comfort us in our grief. He comes to every graveside where we stand and weep over the lifeless body of a beloved in Christ. Jesus comes to every such graveside, and he says to us, as to Martha, in verse 23, your brother will rise again. In this case, of course, in order to prove his divinity, in order to leave a foreshadowing of the final resurrection as well, in this case, Lazarus was going to rise again that very same day. But Martha was correct And she was believing when she said in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's how we have to speak too, isn't it? Jesus hasn't promised to every believer that he or she will rise like Lazarus here in John 11 to walk and talk again here in this present world. But what Martha says in verse 24 can be said of every saint, can it not? of every believer whose body we ever lay in the grave, it can be said, I know that he, I know that she will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And thus, Jesus' words of comfort, your brother will rise again, Jesus' words of promise there can be applied to every believer and can be our comfort at every graveside of every departed saint. Your brother will rise again. Or as Jesus expounds upon it in verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's not just pie in the sky funeral language. That's not just, you know, what we say at the cemetery to sort of help us brush off the doldrums and daydream about some heavenly Shangri-La. These are the words of the Son of God himself. Not just the minister who's trying to say something that he thinks will comfort the people. These are the words of the Son of God. And he backs them up as no mere platitudes and as demonstrable truth, not only by raising Lazarus from the dead, albeit temporarily here in Bethany, but eventually he backs these words up by raising from the dead himself permanently in another graveyard two miles down the road in Jerusalem. Which is one reason he says at the beginning of verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Did you hear it? I am the resurrection and the life. That's an interesting phrase on a couple of different accounts. 
One is that, although the English translation doesn't make this very easy to see, if you read this passage in the original Greek, you would find that Jesus spoke the words, I am here, in such a way as to make plain that he's applying the personal name of God, I am, to himself. Jesus can call himself the resurrection and the life because he's no mere man. But he is, rather, the very author of life, the sustainer of life, the one who alone can bring life out of death. He is the I am. God alone can resurrect the dead, and Jesus is that God. He has the power of resurrection and of life. But the other interesting thing here in this phrase, I am the resurrection and the life, is that Jesus doesn't just say, I have the power of resurrection, And I have the power of life. He says that he himself is the resurrection and the life. He is resurrection. He is life himself. Personally. Which is to say, if I'm thinking this out correctly, our resurrection and our life beyond the grave is inextricably tied to his resurrection. Because he... Or in John 11, he, because he is, or because in John 11 at least he would be the risen one, therefore we in him can be risen ourselves. It is because he is the risen one that we in him can be risen ones ourselves. And that's a powerful thought to take with you to the graveside. Not only is Jesus present in my grief, not only does he come to me and comfort me in my grief, Not only may I go out to him in my grief and find him ready to meet me, not only does he have the power of resurrection in his hands beside this lonely grave, but this Jesus who has come to me and who invites me to come out to him, this Jesus actually is the resurrection. This Jesus actually is the life. And if I and if my loved one here in the grave are in Christ, well then we too will be risen with him. We will live forever with him. And not only bodily, someday at the resurrection, but even very consciously and actually in our souls between death and resurrection. Because not only does Jesus say in verse 25 that those who believe in him will live even if they die. Not only does Jesus talk about resurrection in other words, but in verse 26 he even says that those who believe in him don't actually die at all which I believe is a reference to the fact that even though our bodies die, yet our souls at such death become absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He who believes in me, in other words, will be resurrected and live again even though his body dies. And then also, verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Which means that bodily death is not the death of the soul. The the soul will be with Christ as soon as it departs this world and this body. And so we have a double blessing to look forward to after death. First, absence from the body and presence with the Lord in heaven. And then when Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, shall come again, we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies and continued presence with the Lord in a new earth. And so here is Jesus' comfort to the, to the grieving. Here is our Jesus face to face with the bereaved. Your brother will rise again. 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a question there at the end of verse 26, right? What a question as we stand beside a grave. What a question as we consider our own mortality. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so I ask you, do you believe this? Can you hear the comforting words, the covenant promises of Jesus here in this passage? And do you believe them? Do you believe that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life? That he has authority over life and he has authority over resurrection? That he as God and as the risen one actually is the resurrection and the life himself? Do you believe that therefore those who are in him, those who believe in him will live and not die? And will live even though they die? Jesus wants Martha not only to hear his words of comfort, but to believe in these moments of her grief. He isn't speaking the kind of words, you know, about which James Taylor sang. You remember that song where he says about this woman's words, it doesn't much matter what they mean. She says they're mostly just to calm me down. And he also says, it doesn't matter what they mean, it's just nice the way they sound. I think that's what we often think is going on at the graveside. This man is standing there in his black suit, and he's got his Bible open, and his words are nice the way they sound. They're quite poetic. They're sort of uh, happy things about there being life beyond the grave, and and I'm glad he says them, and, and he's practiced how to say them in a kindly way. To me, they're just nice the way they sound. Jesus isn't speaking like that here. These aren't platitudes. He's not just talking in a soothing tone of voice. He wants to know whether Martha and whether you and whether I believe whether we will live off these words by the graveside or facing the reality of our own death when there is in those moments little else actually to live on. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he's asking us that today. He's asking you that today. And he will ask it of you the next time you're at the graveside The next time you are bereaved over some dear brother or sister in Christ, do you believe this? And I hope you'll be able to say with Martha, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And I hope you'll be able to say with her in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day day. And I hope you'll be able to say such things when your own time comes to die. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And therefore, verse 24, I know that I will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that I will live, verse 25, even though I die. I know that my soul, verse 26, will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Christ like this? Is he your hope for eternity? Is he your resurrection? Is he your life? Receive him as such and you will live even though you die. I don't know, of course, how many of those 
early pioneers and their later descendants buried in that graveyard out in Claremont County. I don't know how many of them were believers, but I'm sure that given this was a church cemetery in those far more Bible-believing days, I'm sure that a good many of them, maybe especially in those early graves nearer to the church building, I'm sure a good many of them were believers in Christ. And therefore, I'm also sure that whether in that quiet graveyard or from the pulpit of that little white church building nestled beside it, or maybe on the dirt roads that led back to their homesteads, or maybe in the secret place of their prayer closets, I'm quite sure that Jesus met, just as he had done with Martha, I'm sure that Jesus met face to face, as it were, through his word, with each one of those bereaved people as they made their way to and from that place of burial. And of death. Perhaps some of them even cried and prayed with Martha and maybe with you. Lord, if you had been here, if you'd somehow intervened for our brother or our sister or my mother or my father or my grandparents or my son or daughter or our pastor, if you had been here, they would not have died. But I'm certain that whatever Jesus' reason for not intervening, for not being there, in the sickness, at least not being there in their minds, I'm sure that he spoke to each of those bereaved people from his word somewhere out in those hills and valleys east of here and said, I'm here now. And your brother will rise again. Your sister will rise again. Your mother and father, your child, your pastor, your grandparents, every last one of my saints laid to rest in these grounds will rise again for I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he says those words to you today. And he will meet with you, each one of you, his people, beside the graveside or somewhere near it when you are the bereaved, when you are in Martha's sandals. While you wait for your brother or sister in Christ, verse 24, to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. While you wait, Jesus will be with you in the meantime, in this day, face to face in your sorrow. And I can promise you, too, on the authority of God's word, that just as Martha found her tears very soon wiped away and her sorrow turned to joy, so I'm certain that you and I who are in Christ today, along with those long dead saints gathered together in that quiet little churchyard, and with Mary and Martha and Lazarus too, we will find ourselves gathered very soon in a glorious reunion. For an hour is coming, Jesus said earlier in this gospel, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies.